1: Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major.
2: Oh! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital.
1: Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Our guest this week on the takeout, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Before we get into that conversation, just a quick reminder what this show is about. The show doesn't exist, ladies and gentlemen, to please you. By that I mean we are not a predictable show. We don't have guests that say the same thing based on the same set of questions. We're not a predictable show, and we don't pander, and we certainly don't preach. I book guests center, left, and right, ask them questions, run their entire answers. Our guests are never edited, and you know what happens after that? You decide what to make of the answers you've heard. So with that, as just a reminder of how the show functions and why it functions that way, because I decide. Here's our guest, Mike Pompeo. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I'm very big on honorifics. I don't know if you are. I'll call you Mr. Secretary or Mike, whichever you prefer. I'll take Mike. I've been that
3: all my life. I was just a secretary for a thousand days. (laughs)
2: Very very good. Um, So I asked this question, Mike, uh, for myself, for the broad audience, and for my colleague Ed O'Keefe. How much weight have you lost (laughs) and how did you do it? So at at peak loss, I lost about 90 pounds. I now
3: put about 10 back on. And I did it the good old fashioned way. I literally stopped eating anything bad and, uh, started exercising more. Sadly, I have no better theory of the case. And have you noticed any benefits? Yes. I feel much better. I, uh, I'm healthier. Uh, my blood pressure is lower. All, all good. Um, It's the reason I did it and I'm happy that I have. And now everyone's got to pray I can keep it off. It's been the it's been a struggle, one of the struggles of my life. So
2: did you uh, do it to make yourself more attractive as a presidential candidate in 2024? No, I did it for my grandkids. Will you be a presidential candidate in 2024? Only the Lord knows. Explain to my audience what you mean by that. We're
3: working and I say we here. It's my wife and I. We're working to help candidates be successful here in November uh we've been at this 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 fight that we think is important for america uh this conservative idea of the founding of our nation and protecting the things that matter most to us for oh goodness 30 years now we intend to stay at it whether that'll be as a candidate for president or in some other capacity goodness only knows but um and when i say only the lord uh we're we're working and we're praying and come the end of this year beginning of next we'll we'll make that decision and we hope it will be guided by him And if it is a choice to get in, we'll head off and make the case to the good people of Iowa.
2: It will come as no surprise to you, Mike, that I contact and stay in regular contact with people around the country in Republican Party circles. And it's their impression that you're going around the country. You've been to Iowa. You've been to New Hampshire. You're also meeting privately with lots of people who are well-known in Republican circles, some of them who are well-known donors, and they conclude that you're building the basics for a operation to run for president, should you so decide. Is that true? That's largely true. Um, the same operation is the one helping candidates here between here
3: and November. But, it, I, you know, I, you go to Iowa, you go to New Hampshire, people will draw their own conclusions. Uh, if we if we decide that we're going to do this, if we're going to present uh, the case uh, for Mike Pompeo for president, if we're going to do that, you can't do it from a standing start either. And so we are, we're doing the kinds of things one might do, at least as we see it, to get ready for that moment. But um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean we've made our decision, I can assure you, because I can even assure you more that we have not.
2: Uh, as specifically as you can, Mike, what difference would it make if former President Trump were to announce his candidacy in, for 2024 as a nomination for the party? Yeah,
3: uh, for the decision that the Pompeo's will make, it, that won't make any difference.
2: Why? Because for some Republicans I talk to, that's a very big factor for them. Yeah, I, I can see why they
3: would say that. Uh, but for, for me, uh, you, you, only, you only go to make this case if you have come to believe in your heart that you are the right person for the moment. You're the right person for the time. If you think it is not you, uh, whoever you think it may be, or if you don't know who it is, but you don't think it's you, then, uh, then you shouldn't present yourself. But if you do, and all the other things align, all the things that have to that come together to put together such a thing. Then you go make the case, and if there's two people in or 22 people, that's not material.
2: Would it cause you any discomfort to run against former President Trump?
3: (laughs) In some ways, I'm sure it'd be uncomfortable. Uh, I remember the Washington Post article that described me as his most loyal cabinet member. Uh, I am proud of the work that we did, and I am deeply grateful to the four years that he gave me. I I mean, who who dreamed that this kid would get to be the CIA director and the Secretary of State for America? So. Yeah, uh, he's someone who I have uh, I have respect for the things that we did for those four years. Uh, And so, you know, I I expect it to be a little uncomfortable for him, too. Right. We worked so closely together and we delivered such good outcomes for the American people. But that discomfort
2: would not deter you if you think you're the right person
3: and everything else lines up, you, you ought to go do it and then let the American people sort it out.
2: As you might know, or you probably noticed, I think I know for a fact you noticed, Kevin Kramer, senator, was on our show not too long ago. He's a very loyal Trump supporter, says so, doesn't hide that at all. But he also said he thinks America's ready for a fresh start. And I said, oh, really? A fresh start from Donald Trump? He said, yes. And then he name checked you. Setting aside the name check, do you think America's ready for a fresh, fresh start from Donald Trump?
3: Oh, goodness. I, I we'll let the American people sort that out. Uh, in the end, you have a hunch on uh, that. I I think I think that when you're sitting here two and a half years out, no, no, no one really fully understands exactly where America will be at that point in time. And so there's still a lot of rocks to be turned over before you can really answer that
2: question. Would you serve? Let's just play this out. And I promise we'll get to other topics. I promise. But I'm a politico and I got to go through this because I'm really interested. And I think our audience is, too. If, in fact, Donald Trump were to run, claim the nomination and be elected, would you serve in a Trump cabinet again? Goodness, if, if President Trump asked me to serve, um,
3: I can't think of the time in my life when someone's asked me to serve in a place where I thought I could make a difference. And that'd be the calculus. If I think I can help the team and make a difference and deliver on the things that that matter to me, my family and to our country, I'm I'm confident that I wouldn't turn down that duty.
2: And if he's the nominee. Quite separate from the fact whether he wins or not, would you support him as a Republican? Nominee? Oh, yeah,
3: absolutely. I'll, oh, uh, barring something really crazy, really, really. I mean, right, I, I, I never I never say never, but I, I'm, I'm almost certain to be supporting the Republican nominee.
2: And certainly nothing that you've heard or seen up until the time we're talking on June 21st would deter you from supporting him if he's the nominee. I am
3: confident I know who the Democrat nominee is going to be, and uh, I'm not going to support that person, I can assure you you you're confident who's it going to be uh, you, you you list the 20 names and i will tell you that uh, i wouldn't support any of any of them oh if i you give me 50 names look i i haven't seen a leader rise up on that side that thinks about america the way that i believe in america and that's in the end what causes me to get behind candidates whether it's folks i'm supporting for city council and school board or the next republican nominee for president
2: uh so we are as i mentioned recording this on june 21st uh, happy solstice by the <laughs> Thank way you. um <laughs> <laughs> there is a framework that is going to lead to legislative language on gun safety and red flag laws and other things with mental health intervention put together on a bipartisan basis in the united states senate already that has taken quite a bit of hostile i don't want to use the metaphor of fire but blowback politically from some republicans are you generally supportive or op- opposed to that i the uh, the
3: devil's in the detail on these things but i'm I'm confident that when you see the final language, it'd be something I could not support.
2: You could not yeah, support. Very, very, because... very
3: unlikely. I, I think there's going to be things in there that I think are inconsistent with a fundamental right that every American holds. And I just can't support that kind of thing. There's, there are lots of things one can do to keep everyone safe. Uh, taking away their rights to own firearms doesn't seem like one of them to me. and it, it looks to me like that's what's developing, although I will I will concede the generic language itself. You could craft language under there that I suppose I'd say, sure, that's that does does no harm to the Second Amendment. Uh, But it seems to me that as they advance this, uh, the more the more I see, the less I think it makes any sense.
2: Does it trouble you that the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, has at least given his overall blessing to the idea of pursuing this outcome? No, I don't have any problem with folks having conversations, trying
3: to find a path forward. Good solutions consistent with the Constitution make sense to me. Uh, again, we'll we'll see what the final language looks like. I, I won't I won't have a chance. To, I won't be asked to vote on it, um, but I'll certainly give my judgment when I get a chance to see it.
2: But your sense, based on what you've seen and how the language has evolved, you would probably be against. That's, I think that's most likely as we sit here today on on Solstice Day. Understood. Mike Pompeo is our special guest back for segment two of the takeout in just one moment.
0: is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett shooting from our office, third floor, downtown Washington, D.C., CBS Bureau. That's where I work. You Probably knew that. Mike Pompeo is our special guest. Mike, um, did you see the platform approved by the Texas Republican Party over this most recent weekend? Again, we're recording on June 21st. Major, I, I have not seen it,
3: although I have seen some reporting about it, but I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the platform itself. Based
2: on the reporting, did you find anything objectionable?
3: Uh, tell me
2: which things you're thinking of, Major. Well, that uh, President Biden is an acting president and an illegitimate one because the election of 2020 was stolen. Yeah, Th- that's, that's a mistake
3: to put that language in a, in a party platform, in my judgment. Um, I don't want any vice president. I don't want any vice president making that kind of decision. I certainly don't want Vice President Harris making that decision four years from now. Uh, I understand the lo- underlying impulse there were lots of irregularities. There was lots of goofy stuff in this election that caused people to have legitimate concerns about some of the votes that were counted. I think that is straight up true. Uh, you, you, you probably lived this more than me. We remember hanging chads from Florida in 2000. Uh, this is not the first time we've unfortunately had an election where there were lots of people who didn't, weren't satisfied with the ultimate outcome. Uh, but if you ask for the moment, um, did, did we get it right that day by certifying those electors? I think we did. I don't want Washington, D.C. to have the kind of power that would flow from a decision that was different from that on that day. So you agree with the position that Vice President Pence? Yeah, I think I think certification was the right legal analysis and the right analysis, making sure that we put the burden on states to make sure that the electors they send to Washington, D.C. are the are the right people, duly, duly elected
2: by the people of their own state. And I want to take you back to what you said a moment ago, because I think it's an important distinction People can raise questions and be uncertain of an election, maybe even and certainly displeased with the outcome. But that doesn't necessarily and shouldn't necessarily mean they have to reject it in perpetuity.
3: Would you agree with that? I think that's right, Major. One of the things that as this uh, as this debate has played out is there's been this loss to be able to hold these two ideas in your head at the same time. Right. One is says, look. Certification was the right solution that day, that time, good good on it. I was proud of the way that ended that day. It was an ugly day on the Capitol, uh, but proud of how it ended that day. We fulfilled the constitutional responsibility of that day. Uh, but I, I look at what how Pennsylvania changed their laws inside the window. I look at the, the these enormous changes in mail-in ballots, and I think of the election offices back home in Kansas, how they're resourced. But well, when you make those big changes in tight to an election, You just amplify risk. And when you amplify risk, transparency goes away. And so people, people doubt and theories arise and people aren't confident in our system. Uh, That's tragic and must be prevented. And a couple of States have made things a little bit better. if I have that right, but a lot of States haven't done what's going to need to be done to make sure that we don't have this happen again. Right. We had an election stolen in 1960, right? This is uh, people act like this is sui generis. Like we've never had a contested election in the United States before. Uh, And I I say that, sadly, we shouldn't have elections where people have doubt. It's, It's 2022. You can figure out who's allowed to vote. You can make sure that they get a chance to vote if they want to. One time, you count that vote one time and you get the data published very quickly, very accurately so that everybody can have confidence that the person who is, you know, Sally at city council or Johnny, who's the county commissioner or someone running for the highest office, we all know that they were the rightfully elected person.
2: Or you mentioned Pennsylvania. Let's name check that. They just had a primary. It was a very competitive Republican primary. Mehmet Oz had about a thousand vote lead over Damon McCormick. They went through the process. David McCormick got halfway through the recount and said, I'm not going to close the gap of 1,000 votes, not 10,000, not 80,000, 1,000, which means Pennsylvania counted the votes. They went through a process. He had a window to look. He looked, and then he accepted. Isn't that the way we should do well, that's
3: this? That's absolutely right. And uh, I, look, I was a McCormick supporter. I've known him since we were cadets. I don't know uh, too long ago, <laughs> forty years ago. Um, and sometimes you come up uh, short, and you have to. That's take right. It. Sometimes, sometimes you come up short, and sometimes you think it's even it might just be a titch unfair. And the process matters. Uh, we 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 got to get it right. You have to have confidence. And I was proud of the way Dave handled that. You know, he could have litigated. He could have fought for longer, I suspect. um, But he ultimately concluded this was the best thing for the people of Pennsylvania. And that's what you
2: ought to do. And that brings me to a word, and I promise I won't chew on this bone any longer, but forbearance matters. Forbearance matters. That is to say, you go through the process, but ultimately what you say about it and how you communicate that to your supporters matters a very great deal. Yeah, I think that's true. It's, it's very hard, I, I am sure, and I, I didn't talk to
3: uh, McCormick about this in particular, but it's very hard uh, when you have doubts about what took place and you see uh, that the election was very, 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 very unruly. And I think that was fair to describe our election in 2016 as unruly. It's a very difficult challenge. I, I, I was a candidate. I never had a nail-biter quite that way, um, but I can imagine how personal that is as well. But I, but I agree with your, your predicate of your question, which is, Uh, It is really important. Uh, I'm counting on this country to be around another couple hundred and fifty years from now and for the republic to continue to stand on the whether it's I talked about the Second Amendment to open every element of that Constitution. I believe we have uh, we've gotten a really good place and we ought to every time make sure that we honor that in every way that we possibly can. I'm I'm sure I don't get it right from time to time myself, um, but I try to give it a good throw
2: so uh, mike i was at the supreme court this morning again we're recording this on june 21st there was a anticipation the court might offer its ruling on dobbs and dismantle if the draft majority opinion is correct roe versus wade there were protesters on both sides of this issue very contentious clamoring at one another and the language i heard today was not the least bit nuanced on one side there was talk of a fascist court ready to impose a theocracy on the American public. On the other side of the issue, there was ruthless cold blooded murderers who only want to murder children in America. It seemed to me as strident as I've ever heard this debate discussed. And I've been in Washington, as you might well remember since 1990, I'm no novice around abortion debates. This feels like this is tearing at something fundamental in the country. I want your thoughts on that. Um, I pray that
3: there's not violence. I pray that there is. Re- you fear there will be? Uh, you know, we had violence in the summer of 20 that was deeply inconsistent with who we are as American people, and law enforcement uh, was told they should be defunded, and the courts refused to prosecute too many of those cases. So, uh, sure, I'm always concerned that there will be. I'm very concerned when you politicize your first comment that you heard about a fascist court that's deeply troubling. Uh, to hear people talk about that institution, that, that really special place that is supposed to be above the political fray. I'm, I'm, I'm not a novice either. I get the politics around the Supreme Court, too. But it is really important that we not rip at the veneer surrounding that, uh, those, those nine people who are, who, are, who are designated and tasked with just interpreting a document uh, and so, sure, I suppose there's risk there'll be violence. I hope there's not. I hope if there is, that everyone who commits unlawful violence is prosecuted to the full extent of the law, that would be appropriate, whichever side of that particular debate the, the violent person is on. Uh, and then, you know, as for the ruling itself, uh, I've long thought that Roe created exactly this kind of strife. I, I've believed deeply that Roe took away from the political process the capacity to have reasoned debate on what is a deeply held view for so many Americans. I'm, I hold this view intensely. I believe in the right for every child to be born with all of my heart. I believe it because of science, and I believe it because of my faith. Uh, and Roe took away the capacity for us to make that case and to argue this out in the process that I think our founders would have uh, preferred. And so if Roe, if Roe, in fact, is overturned in a, in a week or so, uh, I think that will return this to the state's uh, there'll be a heated debate. I hope it's within the lanes of uh, argument and reason. Uh, and then I hope I hope every state will choose to protect the unborn every way they can.
2: But, you know, that won't be true. And some states will look very different to other states. And I wonder if you fear that will deepen what seems to me like an alienation state to state. We look dissimilar to one another.
3: Yeah, we are. There's no doubt about that. I grew up in Southern California. My congressman was B1 Bob Dornan. You'll remember Congressman Dornan. Uh, He nominated me to the United States Military Academy. That that location is very different today. Um, I'm not. That part doesn't bother me. Um, Very different politically. That that part doesn't bother me. The fact that we have states that make different choices and different priorities. Uh, You know, we we talk blithely about the uh, uh, the laboratory of democracy. Uh, The truth is, it just lets people make choices for themselves, and it lets them govern at the lowest level. I wish we had a lot more decided at the state and local level than we do in Washington, D.C. Sign me up for less uniformity on lots and lots of regulatory and tax
2: stuff. Uh, I think America could be healthier for that. That is the voice of Mike Pompeo, our guest here on The
1: Takeout, segment three in just one moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: From CBS News, this is
1: The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Uh, Mike Pompeo was, of course, as you might well remember, Secretary of State of the United States under the Trump administration. He was also CIA director. Putting back on your Secretary of State hat, there has been a change, or there will soon be a change, in the Israeli government. The coalition government, fragile though it was, is basically going to be a caretaker government. The parliament's been dissolved. Implications for the U.S. and the Middle East. Yes an uncertain trumpet
3: leading Israel is a is a real risky proposition for Israel for the Middle East more broadly and frankly for the United States of America too. Uh, we suffered uh, watching through was it three or four elections during our time I think it was I think it was three. Uh, each time there was this transitional period, um, there was just a little less capacity for the existing leadership to make the firm decisions that they needed to. Uh, it's their system, it's their parliamentary system. Uh, they've got a rambunctious parliament and uh, deeply divided uh, citizens. To put it mildly. Yes, uh, deeply. Thank you. I'm a former diplomat, major. Uh, the uh, uh,
2: and so does this. Pay, does this pave? Does it or should it pave the way for a return to power of Benjamin Netanyahu? Oh
3: goodness, uh, the Israeli people get to sort that out. What do you think? Uh, I, I I think the electorate is about as narrowly or evenly divided as it was in those first elections. I, I don't see there being a whole lot of change. Remember, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, fails to get a majority, uh, a, current, a working majority in the parliament by just a handful of uh, delegates, de- uh, parliamentarians. Uh, my sense is that's where the Israeli population still is.
2: Handicap the president's uh, soon to be achieved trip to the region and specifically Saudi Arabia.
3: Uh handicap. I, I don't know how to predict how the meetings will go. Um, it's unfortunate that uh, President Biden put himself in a place today where he's had to walk back a central thesis of his campaign. That's always dangerous, Major. Right? His, one of the central thesis was, I'm a different kind of guy. I care about human rights. I'm going to make the kingdom of Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And then it walked up and smacked him in the face, right? Reality. The hard truth of protecting America and making America prosperous was something Joe Biden told the American people a lie about, and that's too bad because now he's having to go live the truth, which is that we are, we are connected to these nations in deep and fundamental ways. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is an important security partner for the United States of America. We're on the cusp of getting them to sign a peace agreement with Israel. Uh, they are headed in the right direction. They have a human rights record that none of us would want in our own country. I get that. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi was a terrible action, but the reality is, and President Biden is facing that, as he's headed to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where he's going to have to explain to a lot of people, not just to Crown Prince Salman, Mohammed bin Salman, but to a lot of people, why, why it is his view changed from what he promised the American people and what he's doing now. Uh, I actually think he has it right. Uh, he, he he shouldn't have to be in exactly this position. But if you have green climate theology in your blood, um, you end up more dependent on others for energy. And we certainly have that in this administration. And The good people of Kansas and Oklahoma and North Dakota and the Bakken Shale and Midland, Texas are suffering for that.
2: The president will talk to the Saudi officials also about Iran, the nuclear deal that this administration, the Biden administration, has tried to breathe life into appears to be foundering uh because the iranians want the uh iranian revolutionary guard corps taken off the terrorist list the biden administration has objected to that my guess is mike you saw that coming but i think you probably have other thoughts uh yes the uh, the iranians are still terrorists <laughs> so uh you know they took the
3: houthis off the terror list the houthis are still killing people uh, at least it appears for the moment that they're not going to do the same to the world's largest state-sponsored terror, the Iranian Guard Corps. Uh, look, I hope the JCPOA. RIP the JCPOA. I hope it doesn't come back. But frankly,
2: Joint Comprehensive Plan of yeah, Action. That's the, the it, long-winded title yes,
3: for, the sorry, deal, the, the, the for the, the nuclear deal. Just for the audience, nuclear deal that gave a certain pathway to the Iranians for a nuclear weapon. Uh, and I'll concede, for the sake of argument, it might have delayed them by a couple of hours or a couple of months or. A couple, even a couple of years, but it gave them certainty around the capacity to build out their weapons program. That was really dangerous for the United States.
2: But on that point, Mike, what is the tool by which the United States denies them that certainty other than military intervention? Oh yeah, we had it.
3: We absolutely had it. Um, there's no doubt. We, we put a pressure campaign on, we isolated Iran like never before. Uh, they went from $96 billion in foreign exchange reserves down to $4 over the course of what was about really 16 months, the time the sanctions were fully in place, they were on the cusp of having to make a really, really difficult decision. And I am confident that that decision would have been to enter into a set of understandings that would have actually uh, told us what their past nuclear program looked like. You can't do do nuclear assurance unless you know the history of the program. And they lied, and John Kerry knew it. Uh, Second thing, we we would have gotten them to make commitments that were eternal, not for five years, not for 10 years, not for six months, but that were permanent. And they would have made commitments about terror in their missiles. And when they did, and when they did, we would have welcomed them into the, the fraternity of nations to try to do business with each other. This is the Iranian people are awesome. They are wonderful people. They are controlled by a theocratic regime that is intent on the dissolution of Israel and the destruction of the United States of America. And we should deny them dollars to foment that terror and put us at risk by giving them the money and resources to build a nuclear weapon. That was our plan. And we were well on the way to achieving it.
2: Mike, former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, you know this, my audience might not. There is a fatwa on your head, is there not? Uh, There's no
3: doubt that the Iranians uh, are not happy with the way I behaved while I was serving America. But I mean, it's a security situation for you, is it not? I have a security team. Yes, I I do, Major. The uh, Iranians have made threats. They're in the news. They were on Twitter again just yesterday. It's uh, I think it's I think it's a result of the fact that they knew we were serious about protecting America.
2: Let me shift your attention to Ukraine. I have talked a great deal about Ukraine on the show when Russia invaded. I spent six, I think, five straight episodes of this show talking about Ukraine because I believe the stakes are that high. From my perspective, Ukraine has not dropped out of the headlines in terms of its importance, what has dropped out of the headlines in terms of the regularity and the visibility of the coverage. I still think it is the biggest story of this year geopolitically. For my audience's benefit, from your perspective, what are the stakes? The stakes are high. Um, I, I still think that the greatest threat to the country
3: comes from the Chinese Communist Party and not from Vladimir Putin. But your point about 2022 is, is certainly true. Um, he has escalated in ways that are different and dangerous. Uh, the stakes are very real. Uh, the first stake is that you will have this coalition between the Chinese Communist Party and Russia that presents uh, a threat that is as great or maybe greater than the Soviet Union did to us when I, back when I was a young soldier patrolling the then East German border. Uh, you can see how it impacts us here at home in America whether it's red winter wheat that won't be available in the market. In the short run, I'm from Kansas, red winter wheat, high prices, all good. Uh, Bad news, uh, fertilizers, 350 percent more than it was a year ago. And some of that is, in fact, due to the constraints as a result of the aggressive war of Vladimir Putin. Uh, It's also the case that America is an enormous beneficiary from stability in the world, from European stability, from stability in the Middle East, from stability in Southeast Asia, uh, we benefit from property rights and contracts and people of goodwill uh, trading amongst and between each other and working on security together uh, that that helps people in Iowa New Hampshire Kansas all across america and we sometimes take for granted what
2: that instability means but but in these and, and Mike, instability can manifest itself lots of different ways. I've read a ton of stories in the last four weeks about food insecurity and the inability of food to get out of Ukraine and get to places which are already on the edge of food insecurity. How alarmed are you about the potential of the next six to 12 months in that it's space? A,
3: it's a very real risk. Energy and food insecurity, they're, they're tied, right? Energy is the basis for the food, right? You, Natural gas, ammonia nitrate, fertilizer. Um so all deeply connected. I'm very concerned about that. Um, we, we we have to continue to support the Ukrainian people who are fighting for their sovereignty and to make sure it is clear that an action like the one Vladimir Putin took wasn't acceptable in 2015 when he took Crimea and isn't acceptable today.
2: Does the U.S. try to end that blockade in the Black Sea? I'm going to I'm going to
3: speak about this tomorrow. Um, the, the United States doesn't need to take the lead on a project of that nature, but the Europeans should certainly begin to work in that direction, whether it's Europeans working together or working inside a NATO construct. Um, they, they need to find a pathway to make sure that this food can get to market, not, not just so the Ukrainians can have the resources that come from selling their crops, but because the world's going to need that food.
2: Right. And the only way for that food to get out is for that blockade to be somehow
3: altered or breached or removed. Correct. That's right. And uh, first, first effort ought to be what it always is: is diplomacy. Convince. Right. You can do this the hard way or the easy way, but one way or the other, it's got to be and, done. And Major, if I can say th- this is this is what happened there. Um, I I made the comment about 2015 because everyone talks about this war starting on February 24th. This 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 has been the heart of Vladimir Putin since he was at least since he was a KGB.
2: So, Uh, Mike, that's that's important context Let me jump to our next break And we'll come back and continue that conversation On the other side of Major Garrett Segment 4 in just one second
1: Okay, picture this It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend Doing the same old whatever Or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe And hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive And three-row seating My whole family can head deep into the wild Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The
2: Takeout. Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State and CIA Director in the Trump administration, is our guest. Um, So, one of the conversations that has been Filtering around in Europe, and one of your predecessors from a long time ago, but still well regarded, Henry Kissinger, has given voice to it in certain respects that, well, things are hard. May not be possible to push the Russians all the way out of Ukraine. So maybe the Ukrainians, for their benefit, for the benefit of the world, and to end this sooner rather than later, ought to reach some territorial concessions. Status quo ante is the phrase. I know you disagree with that. Explain why. Yeah,
3: in the first instance, it's the decision that the Ukrainians will have to make, right? They're the,
2: they're the ones, that, they're the ones that
3: on the front lines making the greatest sacrifice far, far and away. Um, but second, from an American perspective, or even as I see it, it's not just American, it's a Western perspective. The central thesis, and Dr. Kissinger knows this, he's written about this incredibly. He's written about the importance of sovereign states, the Westphalian concept. That's big, high, fancy language for countries shouldn't be invaded by bad guys. By force, <laughs> right? I try to keep it simple. Uh, and the Ukrainian, Ukraine was invaded by bad guys by force, and we ought not to tolerate that. Doesn't mean we can fix it everywhere and always. Doesn't mean we should send the 82nd Airborne to solve every problem. You can hold those thoughts in your head at the same time, but we ought to. So long as the Ukrainians are prepared to do the hard work to defend their own nation, we ought to provide them with the tools and capacity, uh, think intelligence
2: on top of hardware, to actually deliver that on that point continue to provide the tools and capacity some republicans in noticeable numbers in the house and senate did not vote for the most recent tranche of 40 billion dollars and i wonder if you think republican support will fray as this war drags on what would you tell republicans who are sort of on the fence about future funding for ukraine it
3: is reasonable to make sure that the funding takes place in a way that you can figure out where the money's going and it's actually doing what it's intended to do. Those are very real concerns. When you put lots of money anywhere, Major, you've been around Washington man, it'll it'll wander off into the woods. And there's uh, the risk of corruption inside of Ukraine as well. We, we should make sure that we have that right.
2: But as for. Right. But you also know in times like this, you cannot make. Well, I would yeah. say historic history proves you cannot allow the perfect to be the enemy. I the completely
3: agree. Uh, not binary. Let's get 90 percent. Perfect. Let's get to 82 percent. I'm, I'm not using this as an excuse not to provide it. I'm simply suggesting it is reasonable to make sure that the resources are being used effectively. Having said that, uh, I'll step back from that. That would not I probably would have voted for this in the end where I in the United States Senate, I probably would. have. You would not I probably would have. I probably, oh, I would've, you would have okay, probably would have voted for it. Uh, I would have tried to put in place the, the rules of the game to make sure we got it right uh, on the fly. Um, but it is imperative that we don't blink here. Uh, it's imperative that we continue to provide these tools. Uh, Zelensky didn't ask for a MagTef. He just said, give me, I don't need your people. I, I don't even want it. He asked Europe and the world to help him do the task that the Ukrainian people have to do. And we, for, for the reasons I talked about, it matters to America. What happens in Kyiv doesn't stay there. But there's also the secondary importance, which is stability in the world matters. And Xi Jinping is watching how we respond to Vladimir Putin's attack, I can assure you. So is Chairman Kim, so is the Ayatollah, and so is uh, Nicolas Maduro. Bad guys hang around each other and whisper. And if we aren't prepared to let the Ukrainians defend themselves, I promise you that the Taiwanese, or perhaps even one day the South Koreans, they'll be more at risk as well because they won't view the West as being serious at at supporting its friends against aggression.
2: I'm glad you mentioned the South Koreans because it brings me to this question. You and I do not know what the end game is going to be, but let's just say for the sake of argument, the Ukrainians do push the Russians out and the Russians withdraw. That border is still going to be fragile. Putin's ambitions will not cease now he may lose power but russia's ambitions will not cease it seems to me mike pompeo former secretary of state that the international community at some level is going to have to provide some kind of peacekeepers or something as a buffer a do you agree with that and b if you do agree with that do you think that's something that over the horizon policymakers in this country ought to be thinking about there should be a, I, I think it's probably
3: the case that there will need to be some kind of you know, the OSCE was there along the Donbass, along the line of control, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, really monitors more than anything else. Not certainly not fighters, just monitoring who, who was who was violating the very series of agreements, writing reports. Uh, we will at least need that. It,
2: but after but after this carnage, economic disruption, the world is going to want something more than monitors and a very thin line that can be easily crossed. We'll need to
3: see, we'll need to see what Ukraine wants. And I, again, I always come back to sovereignty as a central thesis of how mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the world Delivers good outcomes for all of its people. We'll see what the Ukrainians want, and when the time comes, the proper people to engage in that conversation with them are the Europeans. This is this is their continent. This is their place. America meets, needs to remain focused on the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, and so uh, we'll all cross that bridge when we come to it. And I hope that we do uh, come to exactly what you're describing. And we a joyous day, and we will figure out our best solution to deliver. Continued stability. I use that word lightly in a region as fraught as that.
2: Yes, uh, the back to the importance of stability. Uh, where were you on January sixth, twenty twenty one? Where was I on January sixth, twenty twenty? I was in the uh, State Department. Uh, yeah.
3: Yes, uh, I was. Uh, I met with a bunch of folks. I was a busy day. If you look at my last two weeks in office, we crushed it. We got a lot done in those last two weeks. I was moving paper and. Uh, Fighting fights inside my own building with people who were trying to undermine what I was doing. I met with a group of pastors who came to visit me that afternoon, and then uh, sometime mid afternoon, late afternoon, uh, I learned of the violence on the Capitol. And your reaction to that was? Yeah, it was you watching. You know, I guess the I, I'm I'm thinking about my role as Secretary of State and thinking how I'm going to respond to leaders across the world who are watching this. What will they think? What will? They-
2: Did you get any calls on that day about what our stability was or what was happening, you know, Major? I. I don't think I'm at liberty to talk about that. Okay.
3: Would it be fair to assume that at least one or two calls came in? Uh, again, I, I'm not going to comment, but I've, I've certainly, during my last couple of weeks and uh, subsequent to that, as the former secretary, I've talked to world who yes. asked me about it. That's that, that part, that's, that's accurate.
2: Understood. Uh, there have been some who served in the cabinet who resigned very quickly thereafter, who have suggested there was some conversation about the twenty fifth amendment. Do you have any recollection of that? I, I do have a
3: recollection. Yes. What was it? I never had a serious conversation about the 25th Amendment with anyone, including with I've seen the reporting that Secretary Mnuchin and I had serious
2: conversations about it. It did not happen. It did not happen. It did not happen. And from your vantage point, was that ever a serious topic at that moment or any moment of the Trump presidency? Never. Never. And And from your vantage point, should not have been. No.
3: If I thought I should have been, think- sh- been, I thought I should have been, I would have I would have instigated the conversation.
2: <laughs> right. right. Do you think that in any way, shape or form? Former President Trump bears any responsibility for what happened on January
3: 6th. Oh, goodness. You know, I'll, I'll let everybody else sort it out. I, you know, it's a complicated set of things that came together that day. Uh, you know, I, I look at what I was doing. Maybe I could have done something that day, too. uh, uh Sure, some, sure, some, some level, non-zero, of course.
2: That is the voice of Mike Pompeo. He's been generous enough to spend all four segments with us. We appreciate it. Uh, I'm Major Garrett for our radio audience. We need to say farewell. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go,
1: I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan
2: Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.
0: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it?